You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Let's hear the word of the Lord. John chapter 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, that is Jesus, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I watched and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been born, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if Anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, well, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, and if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. 
If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Heavenly Father, we call on you this morning that you would be pleased, Father, to bless us with understanding. Father, you would work in the midst of our eyes and our hearts that we would see and hear that which, Father, you have designed, that which is the Holy Spirit's design in recording this story. Father, we would be instructed, and we'd be further instructed that we may glorify you, that our capacity to worship you may be enhanced, that our love for you may be increased. And, oh, Father, our commitment and submission to you uh, may, be, uh, may grow. And to these ends, Father, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a long text, isn't it? Um, I made a joke here very recently that it was probably going to take us about three or four hours to get through this text. Uh, so, yeah, I wanted to see Stephanie's face when I said that. That's all. <laughs> it's so animated. Sorry to mean to pick on you, but I knew it would get some facial expression, and you did not disappoint. <laughs> you did not disappoint at all. It is a long text, and... Um, uh, that's why I, over the last couple of weeks that we spent some time on some preliminaries in this text. I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot of lessons in this text, but there is a, an overarching theme in this text that we do need to get. This text needs to be kept together. It needs to be handled at least uh, once as a whole so that we can see the thrust. Sometimes when we're down in looking at the details and we get busy looking at the details, we... Um, we might lose sight of the whole, if you will. Sometimes it is said uh, that we can lose the forest for the trees. Uh, uh, that proverb would catch what I'm talking about here uh, very well. Uh, so what I'd like to do uh, this morning is really go through the text and explain it. Uh, we'll go really practically through. We can walk kind of quickly through each verse and kind of um, explain what is happening here. And then from there, we'll begin to put all of this together. Uh, I think that it's helpful, especially when we have a text this size, to have some kind of working diagram in our minds. Uh, it's, it's a long text, and it helps me to approach this text if I can see it maybe in steps. And if you look at verses 1 through 7, in verses 1 through 7, we have the account of Jesus coming to a man who's been born blind and restoring his sight. And really, restoring is not the right word because the man has never seen in the first place. So he's giving these eyes that have never functioned, he's giving them sight. That's verses 1 through 7. And then in verses 8 through 12, we have the account of this man's neighbors trying to process what has happened to this man. 
verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 uh, are that uh, account of the neighbors uh, processing this. And then in verses 13 through 34, we have the account of the Pharisees processing this. And of course, they process this with great bias. And uh, I, I point this out to you. See, in doing this exercise, uh, we, also, we already know something about the text just by the sheer amount of material that's given to the, each of these heads. In verses 1 through 7, so much is going on in these seven verses. And then we have this man with his neighbors pretty quickly. Verses 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, that's over. But verses 13 through 34 involve the Pharisees processing uh, what has happened. And again, with great bias. Now, that tells us right there by the sheer amount of material uh, that there's a lot of significance to this uh, uh, process, if you will, that the Pharisees undergo in investigating uh, the healing of this man. Now, if you look down to verse 35 there, verses 35 through 38, uh, we have uh, Jesus returning uh, to this man. It's a beautiful text, the most beautiful part of the entire thing, even more beautiful than the man receiving his sight. And in verses 39, 40, and 41, we have really some closing statements by Jesus on what has happened. Uh, so what I'd like to do is just let's, let's tell the story, you know, let's tell the old, old story and, and uh, kind of walk through these verses rather quickly, and then we'll start to put this together. We know, and we've been over the material, verses 1 through 7 will be most familiar with us. Jesus is passing by, and he sees a man blind from birth. The disciples hit him with some questions that take us really into the heart of the age-old problem of human suffering. Jesus answers it very quickly with an astonishing answer in verse 3. Uh, it was not that this man had sinned, that he was born blind, nor was his parents that sinned that he was born blind, but that it was the will and design of the Father, which is a staggering answer, isn't it? It was the design and will of the Father. And so far, that, that's really what, you know, in verse 3, that's kind of, that's, that's been about as far as we've went with verse 3. But I want to tell you that verse 3 is carrying a lot more freight than simply answering the question of human suffering here. In fact, verse 3 is informing us when Jesus says that this man was born blind, that the works of God might be displayed in him. That verse is indicating to us that there's something going on here whose significance far exceeds healing of blind eyes. So we're to see something in this text that goes way beyond this wonderful miracle that happened uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. Uh, and Jesus in verse 4 adds to that when he says, we must work the works of him who sent me. In other words, this is the next assignment. It's a divine assignment. It's an eternal assignment. And it's meant to display the very working, outworking of God. The outworking of the Father, the outworking of the Son, the outworking of the Holy Spirit is to be displayed in what is about to take place. Then Jesus adds, and it seems at first, it seems like it's, how does it fit? Verse 5, he says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. 
And the reader of John's gospel says, yeah, okay, you know, I've, I've read that somewhere else. Yeah, let's page back a little bit. Oh, yeah, in the last chapter, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now, we're aware of that statement because we devoted an entire morning to it, didn't we? Where I developed that. And we don't have time. We can't go into redeveloping that this morning. Uh, the, the, the message is online. We can look at it if you, if you missed it. And uh, it it's really is foundational to understanding John. We're not going to understand John 9 without John 8. And really, I don't know that we understand John 8 without John 9. And that's the intimate connection that I've been talking about between these verses and the, and the, the, the linkage between these verses in verse 5 and verse 12. 8, 12, and 9, 5 are linked, namely with this pronouncement where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It's an incredible announcement. In this, he is making a profession of deity. You'll recall there trying to kill him because he's making himself equal with God. Uh, he's, making, he's doing more than making himself equal with God. He's proclaiming he is God. Uh, he's, it's another proclamation that he is God. He's not going to leave himself without proof. Uh, verse 6 and 7, he, 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 it's a strange way to fix someone's eyes. A spit in the ground, spit in the dust, make mud out of it, smear it on the guy's eyes, send him off to the pool of Siloam. Don't try that at home. There's plenty in, the, plenty in here in the medical community who say, don't do that. Don't smear that stuff in your eyes. Uh, you could take perfectly good eyes and ruin them doing that. But not if you're the sovereign creator of the world. Not if you're the sovereign creator of the world. Everything, all matter, all material, all life answers to the one who is the sovereign creator of the world. Now, this, this scene changes in verse 8. The man, he goes to the pool of Siloam. He does what he is told. He washes. He comes back seeing. And we would presume that he went home. He's probably been begging. Jesus sees him begging. That's, that's, his, that's his industry. That's his vocation. What do you do for a living? I beg. I can't do anything else. I beg. Now he can see. What do you suppose he wants to do? I would think he would like to see what his mother looks like because he's never seen her face. I think he'd like to see what his cousins look like, his brothers look like, what his dad looks like. I think he'd want to come home and tell everybody. And, of course, we see the neighbors. The neighbors become aware of what has happened. In verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, what, what in the world? Isn't Am I seeing things? Isn't that the guy? I'm, I know it's the guy. Of course we know it's the guy. We've, we've handed him money for many, many years. Is this not the guy that used to beg? Some says yes, others say no. In the meantime, he kept saying, yeah, I am the man. I am the man. Well, what's the natural question we're going to ask? What are you going to ask somebody? If this happens in your block, what are you going to ask? You're going to come up to him and say, what happened? How is it that you can now see? And of course, that's what they ask. How are your eyes open? Verse 10. Verse 11, the man called Jesus. Hold on to that. Hold on to that thought. Notice how he makes a reference to Jesus in this text. The man called Jesus. The man called Jesus in verse 11. He made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said, well, where is he? That would be the second thing you'd want to know, isn't it? When you want to see him. 
Oh, I got to see. I got to see this guy. Who is this guy? Where's he at? I don't know. Then the scene changes. They don't know what to make of it. They're not processing. What do we make of this? Let's bring him to the religious leaders so they can shine some light on what's happening here. Verse 13, the scene changes. They brought the man to the Pharisees. We're given a detail in verse 14 that troubles us. It was the Sabbath day, or it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Uh, It reminds us of something, doesn't it? It reminds us of all the way back in chapter 5 about the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. That was on a Sabbath day, right? That didn't turn out so well, did it? Because we're told that one of the reasons why that they wanted to kill Jesus was he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He's doing these healings on the Sabbath. Now, verse 15, the Pharisees ask him, that is the blind man, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. We could just stop right here for a moment and process this division that goes on among them. But first say, he's a Sabbath breaker. He can't be from God because he's a Sabbath breaker. We've been over this a couple of times, haven't we? Some of you might say, yeah, we've over, been over it a lot. We're, let's go over it again because it's so very, very important. As I've said many, many times, Jesus is a Sabbath breaker in their estimation. Now, how do they come to the conclusion that he's a Sabbath breaker? Because of their tradition, because of their system. They're seeing this through the lenses of their man-made system. And their man-made system is blinding them to such a degree that they're heralding these blasphemous accusations at God himself. See, it's always a danger that when a, when a tradition or a system comes up to be at the level of authority with the word of God, when this happens, here's one thing you can count on every time, that system will then trump the word of God. That's how the cults get started. That's how they get started. They get this other revelation, if you will. And we've got this other revelation. And then they bring it in. And they say, okay, this this revelation is also from God. This is, And they bring it in and they add it to the scriptures that we have here. And it's not long. It's not long before now this begins to trump the word of God. It begins to color everything that they see. Uh, In their estimation, Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, and in their blindness, they fail to see that their tradition is trumping the Word of God. And and that is the consequence. See, sin has consequences. When we sin, it brings consequences. When we do this, when we add to the Word of God, if you will, it it carries with it a consequence, and that consequence is increased blindness, if you can imagine uh, any increased blindness. But it brings increased, increased blindness. Now, we might say the other folks, you know, the other folks don't sound so bad because they're saying, well, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And some have speculated that maybe Nicodemus is the one who's saying these things. But is, there, is, is this foolproof 
Is this, is this arguing on a foolproof? It sounds, the start of it, it sounds, and on the surface of it, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, does that sound pretty good? How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? I think we might be tempted to say, yeah, but you know, Rick, the way you're putting this, I don't think I should say, yeah, I think I should say no. And that's why we read from Deuteronomy 13 this morning. And these men would have known Deuteronomy 13. And the whole point here is that uh, miracles do not always attest that the spiritual authority is from God. How do we know that? Well, let's... I asked you to kind of keep your place in Deuteronomy 13, if you had something to keep your place with. And if you go back to Deuteronomy 13, let's just take another quick look at it. We won't have to spend much time there, but in verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a what? A sign or a wonder. Now, why would God be telling them this? Because at some point in the future, one of these characters are going to arise. And they may even have the ability to perform a sign or a wonder. Right? Now he goes on and says, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So what is God saying here? He's saying it might be possible. And, and, and they should already know that it is possible. Because Moses has been leading them. God has caused... God. Moses is... Moses is speaking. God is speaking through Moses. And at the very beginning of Moses' ministry to, the, uh, to, the Hebrew, to his own people, to the Israelites, what did he do in Pharaoh's chambers? He took a staff and he threw his staff down on the floor and it became a what? It became a serpent. And he grabbed it by the tail and it became a staff again. Now what did, what did Pharaoh's magicians do? They did the same thing. Now, would anyone be willing to say that Pharaoh's magicians are attesting to the same spiritual authority as Moses? Moses' spiritual authority is indeed from the Lord, isn't it? But these magicians of Pharaoh, this is occultic stuff. Uh, this, this is nasty stuff. So there you see the miracle itself does not always attest that the spiritual authority is from God. Uh, now, how would we know the difference one from the other? There's only one criteria. Uh, in fact, it's given to us. You don't need to, if you've already left the place, you don't need to turn there. But the criteria is this. Uh, you shall not listen to these people if they say, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. Where could we learn that from? We can only learn that from the Word of God. You see, the Word of God becomes the criteria upon which we are to evaluate these signs. You see that? But now, in the case of the Pharisees, there's, 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 there's confusion because they've got their system. 
And their system is blinding them. It's bringing confusion to their eyes. And they're making evaluations based on their tradition instead of the Word of God. And it's leading them to devastating conclusions. Devastating conclusions. They will do that every time. We must, to the law and to the testimony, we must go if we're going to evaluate anything in this life. It's to the Word of God that we must go. Now, spiritual pride is blinding these characters. So what do they do? Uh, well, they ask the man, what do you say about him who's opened your eyes? And he said he is a prophet. Let's hold on to that as well in verse 17. I'm going to give you a few things to hold on to. You're going to need a little basket to put them in. Um, do your best to try to hold on to these things. The scene changes in verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. So, okay, they go to the parents. All right, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Two simple questions. The parents say, yeah, we know this is our son, that he was born blind, but how he now sees we don't know. That's hard to believe that they don't know, isn't it? The neighbors know. Do the neighbors know something about this that the parents don't know? I guess it's possible. You, you might think like me. I think it's very unlikely, isn't it? I mean, where do you suppose he's, who do you suppose he wants to go see first? He was, go see his parents. And what do you suppose they're going to ask? How did this happen? And what do you think he's going to say? The man they called Jesus, he made mud. And he smeared it on my eyes, and I went to the pool of Siloam and watched it, and now I, I can see. I received my sight. So why do the parents act this way? Why, do they, what, what, why, why are they answering like this? Um, why do they say in verse 21, how he now sees we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. Why are they saying that? Verse 22. His parents said these things because they were afraid. Afraid of who? They're afraid of these religious leaders. For the religious leaders had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. He was to be put out of the synagogue. Now, it might be tempting to get hard on the parents right now, but I just want to caution us. I'm cautioning my own heart as well. Don't get so tough on the parents because I think we've got persecution coming our own way. And probably the second, probably the second scariest thing that these folks could experience. Second, probably to death, the physical death or death of a loved one, would be being pitched out of the synagogue. Why? Because in this economy, if you will, Synagogue life was so very, very important. To be kicked out of the synagogue is going to affect you socially. It's going to affect you and your family. It's going to affect you economically. You'd be ruined. You'd be ruined. Who's going to do business with you if you've been kicked out of the synagogue? How about your family? What's this going to do with your family? Family is so very important. What's it going to do with your family? You've been thrown out of the synagogue. It's very scary for these parents. Let's not get too tough on the parents. Let's not get too tough on them because uh, I, I, I think a day is approaching. Uh, where we may find ourselves in similar situations. I don't know that we will always answer any better than these parents. I pray that we will, but we won't know until we're there, now will we? Um, we do not want, but the measure that we judge, that same measure will be dealt judgment. And 
you know, I think my point's pretty clear. So in verse 23, the parents say, listen, he's of age, go ask him. So they pass the buck back to their son. Then the scene changes. The Pharisees come back to the son in verse 24. A second time, they call the man who had been blind, and they, they say, give glory to God. Now, why, what, what's up with that? There's a couple of, couple, of different trans, a couple of different ideas, interpretations of what could be meant by that. I think that the one that makes the most sense is that they're just imitating Joshua. In Joshua chapter 7 and verse 9, I think it's verse 19, right in that area somewhere, Joshua is questioning Achan. He wants Achan to tell him the truth. Tell me what happened. Give glory to God and tell me what happened. In other words, give glory to God and tell us the truth. Mind, mind, I mean, mind you, where are they at? They're divided. Uh, some say, well, this, this man is not from, he was a sinner. He couldn't be doing these signs. Uh, others are saying, well, he's a Sabbath breaker. He can't be, he can't, you know, God can't be possibly doing these miracles through him. Uh, give glory to God. Tell us what really happened. That's what's, I think, going on there. Uh, we know this man is a sinner, they say in verse 24. Do you now? Do you now? Verse 25, the man answers, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Sounds like an early fragment of amazing grace, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't it sound a little bit like amazing grace? How sweet the sound. Maybe he said that too, I don't know. That didn't get recorded for us if he did. It's just a joke. Uh, thank you, somebody chuckled. <laughs> Bad joke. Keep going, Rick. Shut up. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You're going to find this kind of amusing because I think it is amusing. Notice how the blind man answers in verse 27. He says, I've told you already. And you would not listen. Here you could, you, you really can't help but to see that his patience, he's growing impatient with these religious leaders. He's like the opposite of his parents. His parents are afraid of them. But this man is witty. He says, it's almost like he said, I already told you. Why do you want to hear it again? You won't listen. And notice what he says at the end of verse 20. Do you also want to become his disciples? Oh, oh, oh. Imagine being, you imagine hearing this. If we heard this, we'd probably be going, Ooh, whoa, this guy's a firecracker. Is he not a firecracker? Um, do you also want to be his disciples? Oh, that gets them upset. Look at verse 28. They reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. We could say a lot about that. We don't have time to. Verse 30, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Here the man's bewildered. You're the religious leaders. You guys are the leaders, and you really, truly are puzzled by this, aren't you? You guys really are. He's probably looking at their faces. He can see now. You know, I used to hear you guys. I didn't realize what you guys, but now I can see you. And this is amazing. It's amazing that you're so blind. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And besides that, Isaiah and some of the prophets prophesied 
the blind eyes would be opened in the Messianic age when Messiah comes. Notice verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? Oh, how arrogant. But there's something else there that we do good to pay attention to. Is they attack his person. Now, what's that mean? 110% of the time when they attack your person like this, they are empty. They have nothing else. They have nothing else. Now, we, we're so used to that in our culture, I'm, you know, especially when elections come around. Don't you hate that? It would be really nice to hear someone. You know, I've been telling Tammy, you know, I said, maybe someday someone will just show up and, and just say, you know what, I'm not going to slam anybody. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to say, this is what I believe, and this is what I'm running on. And just tell us what you believe and tell us what you run on so we can make a decision about you. But instead, what we usually hear is all these insults, all these cases. You, can't, you could never learn anything about what these candidates believe or what they don't believe by listening to these insults. And that's by design. They don't have to tell you what they believe. They don't have to tell you what they're going to do. They don't have to make promises that they don't have to keep. I really pray for a day where the American people will say, we've had enough of this. You guys are going to do that? We're going to give you no mind whatsoever. We need to identify that for what it is. It's deceit. In this case, in this case, they're out of gas. And what makes them so mad is here are these doctors of theology. Here are the, these are the most, these are the most prestigious leaders in the land, if you will. And they've just been outgassed by this blind guy. This blind beggar. Oh boy. That would, that would be, uh, that would be tough. You were born in utter sin, verse 34. Would you teach us? And they throw him out. Presumably out of the synagogue. He's thrown out. I, I think he's done. He's out of the synagogue. Then our scene changes and it gets the, it becomes, this is the most beautiful of the scenes. I think you'll agree. Because what happens when he's cast out, who comes and finds him? The lover of souls, Jesus himself, heard that they'd cast him out, verse 35. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And notice how he answers. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him with your eyes. You have seen him. It's hard to read this without having tears flow from your eyes. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And in verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. Is that beautiful or what? Who is he looking at? Looking at his creator. And more so, he's looking at his creator as his creator is extending merciful love. We sing a song called Chesed. And that is steadfast love. In King James translation, it's usually translated mercy, but not always. Misier recordio is the Spanish word for that. It's a precious, precious word. And it is this chesed love that is being extended 
to this sinner. And what does he do in response? He worships him. And Jesus concludes with a couple of comments. He says in verse 39, for judgment I come into this world. Those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. That's an explanation of this. What is the significance? Well, at the beginning of the story, we have a blind man. He's never seen before. But he is not the only one in our story who is blind, is he? No. We have a blind man. We have blind neighbors, blind parents, and blind religious leaders. Did you get all that? I'll say it again. We have a blind man, blind neighbors, blind parents, and blind religious leaders. Everybody's blind. They're all blind. Um, as the story progresses, the one born blind slowly begins to see while the rest remain blind. And in this story and in this light, we see how our story demonstrates God's working of converting a soul, don't we? Last week, you know, I know some of you probably didn't know what to make of last week's message, and that happens sometimes. It's probably 99% my fault. But um, last week, we really were just trying to impart information. And really, I, what I wanted us to do was really to think through this. And I wanted to take a stab at why Jesus used the mud, you know, his peculiar method. It was the name of the sermon last week. Um, but we asked a lot of questions about the man, questions that we know. What do we know about this man? We know that he's never seen. We know that he was blind. We know that mercy was the only recourse that he had. He was a beggar. That's it. So he had to depend upon mercy. That's, he's helpless and he's blind. And we know that he doesn't look for Jesus. Jesus comes and looks for him. And we know that he doesn't give himself sight. We know that it's Jesus who gives him sight. What does that sound like? Some of us might say, well, it kind of sounds like me. I once was blind, but now I see. That's exactly what it is. And what we require in order to see is the light of the world. Without the light of the world, we are in utter darkness. But the beauty of this passage is Jesus is the light of the world, and in his light we see light. In his light we see light. We can see the progression of the man. If you look at verse 11, I asked you to hold on to this. How does, Jesus refer, how does the blind man refer to Jesus in verse 11? He refers to him as the man called Jesus. Remember that? Get in your basket. You put it in there earlier. It's probably on the bottom. So I gave you a bunch of other stuff to cover it up with. But uh, Verse 11, the man called Jesus. But then by the time we get to verse 17, he's calling him a prophet. And then when we get to verse 27, it's, it's implied by what he says. He says to the religious leaders, 
Do you want to, do you also want to become his disciple? The word also tells us a lot, doesn't it? He's a disciple and he's asking them if they also want to become disciples. So here he's a disciple. A man called Jesus, a prophet, disciple. Do you see the progression there that's taking place? There's a clear progression there taking place. In verse 33, he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But then when we get to verse 38, he says, Lord, Lord, kurios, kurios. It's a Greek word that's used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that word is used for Yahweh. It's used for Jehovah. Kurios. It can mean master or sir. Not in this context, it doesn't. He's calling him Lord. How do we know that? Because it wouldn't be proper for him to worship a simple master or sir. And he falls down and worships, and Jesus does nothing to stop him. You see, that's important to see. He falls down and he worships, and Jesus, who is without sin, does nothing to stop him. And it's the, it's, it's the saving response to chesed love. It's the, saving, it's the saving response to the mercy that's being extended to him to fall down and to worship. To fall down and to worship. Now, the Pharisees, where are the Pharisees at? Well, they're processing this, but with great bias. They're full of pride. They love their system. Systems are designed to allow unconverted people to have assurance. And I don't think I should use the word assurance. I think I should use the word comfort because people who are walking in these systems generally do not have assurance. I have encountered people who do have assurance. They believe in their system and they've got assurance from it. But 90% of the people, I think probably it's safe to say 90% of the people, if you ask people they are in those things and you say, are you going to heaven? They're going to give you this answer. I hope so. That don't sound like assurance. I hope so. But their system comforts their, comforts them. I mean, a system is something that you can do. They give their constituents these things you can do. So a person could say, okay, he or she can say, all right, here's these things I can do. And they can reason to themselves, if I do this, 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 and this, then I can have reasonable confidence that I'm on the right path and That'll, of course, comfort them. But assurance is something that comes, true assurance is something that comes only from God. That can only come from God. Only God can bring that assurance, and it's usually lacking. And if there is assurance when you're following a man-made system, it's going to be a false assurance. You're better off to not have it. Uh, A person who is really assured of their system is a person who's not going to budge from it. Um, So I use the word comfort instead of assurance, because I find so many people find comfort in it, not assurance. And adherence to these systems are blind to their actual depravity, and therefore the need of Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Here's something that you could write down. Um, Blindness to personal depravity is equal to blindness to God's holiness. Blindness to personal depravity is equal to blindness to God's holiness. They're in the same measure. To the blindness that we have to God's holiness, we are going to be blind to our personal depravity because what happens when we get one glimpse of God? What happens? 
Some of you are saying it. What happens to Isaiah? Falls down and says, woe is me. What is the holiness of a vision of Christ that he sees in the temple? The New Testament interprets that. Who is it that Isaiah sees? He sees a vision, a vision of Christ. And what, what does he do? Mighty angels are covering their eyes. They're covering their feet with the wings. Feet remind them of, the, of their creatureliness and their eyes. They can... They're covering their eyes at the sight of God's glory and His holiness. And Isaiah gets a glimpse of this, and what happens? He says, woe is me. In the Hebrew, it literally means I'm coming undone here. That's why the old King James translates, woe is me, for I am undone. He's literally coming apart at the seams. He's coming apart at the seams. You see, to the degree that we see God's holiness, to that same measure, we're going to see our depravity. But you see, the good news of seeing our depravity is that we suddenly begin to see we need Jesus. And I could, I could, we could tease this equation a little, a few ways. Let's tease the equation. To the measure we see our depravity, the same measure we're going to need Jesus. You don't have any depravity, you're not going to need Jesus very much. But you begin to see your depravity from seeing the holiness of God, all of a sudden you're going to see you really need Jesus. You really need Jesus. But then when Jesus, who you really need, reaches out in the way that he's reached out to this blind guy, and he reaches out with these arms of love, what does that do to you? What does that do to you? It melts you. It melts you. Many of you know what I'm talking about. I hope everyone in this room this morning knows what I'm talking about. If not, I hope today you'll come to know what I'm talking about. And how, how are we ever going to see this? How are we ever going to see what I'm talking about? John 8, verse 12. John 9, verse 5. Someone said, wait, of all these verses, I forget. What is 9, 4? As long as I'm in the world, I am what? The light of the world. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. His light both saves and blinds. That's the meaning of the final verses there. In verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world. Someone said, wait a second. He, came, he said he didn't come to judge. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. How can he say he came for judgment? Because his light shining in this dark world actually does both. It saves some and it judges others. Because some come and others resist. So it necessarily so uh, brings about both. Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows him, like this blind man, will never walk in darkness again. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this amazing text of Scripture. For you have said that it's the truth that will set us free. Oh, Lord, how the truth is, enters our hearts and warms our hearts this morning. It gives us that assurance that is so missing, and it will only be missing and always be missing apart from your truth, apart from your word.
Oh, Father, fill us this morning, we pray. Fill us, O oh Lord, with these truths. Oh, Father, cause the light of Christ, who is the light of the world, to shine in our eyes afresh this morning. And, oh, Father, in that light, may we walk for your glory, for in that light we see light. And, oh, Lord, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.